0: Welcome to the Lighthouse Community Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope today's teaching will encourage you in your faith and help you develop an increasing desire to walk with God. Let's listen in. Hey, good morning. <sighs> hey, I'd like for you to think for just a second about uh, about your identity. uh uh-huh. Think about your identity, what it is. Uh, I actually, you might even think when you, as you think about it, you might think about uh, identity theft. I actually talked to somebody this morning who had left their wallet in a shopping cart uh, and left the store. And fortunately, somebody turned it in, and some kind person did that. But you know, you, we sometimes think about having our identity stolen, things like that. Uh, but if somebody had, to, if you had to explain to somebody who you are, you had to, uh, like, if you had to explain uh, your identity to somebody, you know, what would you say? You know, a lot of times the, there are immediate responses that come into our mind. We think of our name, uh, where we're from. Um, <clears throat> we we think of things that will help people understand who we are. So, like I might tell you, well, I'm a member of this church, or uh, um, I have my I'm uh, Josie and Emma's dad, or I'm I'm uh, I'm Bill and Linda's son, or I might say all those things. I might say, uh, yeah, I might tell you what I do for a living, or something like that. So there are all those normal responses that come. Come with that, but uh, the question of of my identity is it's actually really uh, more complex than that. You know, uh, all of those things are are things about me, but it's not necessarily exactly who I am. Our identity uh, it's more than that; it's deeper than that. It's, uh, it's it's more than what's on our driver's license, and it's more uh, than what's our bank account number is. It's it's our identity is the core of who we are. And it, it drives every aspect of, of how we think and what we do. So with that said, I want to say good morning. My name is Matt Smith, and if, I guess that's not my identity. It's just my name, right? Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, but I want to say welcome. Uh, whether you're joining us online or you're here in person, I'm really, really glad you joined us this morning. Um, we are uh, continuing our series in John, uh, as, as uh, Jenny told you. For the last two weeks, we've been digging into the first chapter and uh, John's gospel begins differently than what we might, expect, uh, we might expect when we think of Christmas. You know, when we think of Christmas, we're, a lot of times we're thinking about the birth of Christ. And so Matthew and Luke make this, uh, uh, they start their account of, of Jesus' life uh, in generally the same place with a, a genealogy, right? They tell you uh, what Jesus' identity is based on who his ancestors were. Right And so they start there, <clears throat> John, however, he jumps in and he starts uh, he starts his account of the life of Christ uh, in a different way, but with a genealogy that's just a different type of gene- genealogy, one that starts it actually starts before time and uh, and it points clearly to the fact that Jesus is God uh, both so both of these things, both these genealogies are actually both good and right because Jesus was fully man and at the same time is fully God. So uh, John cuts right to the chase and highlights Jesus as God and as creator. Now this is incredibly important. How you receive that piece of information, what you think about that gives, uh, it, it, it affects how you're going to read and understand God's word. Um, if Jesus is God and creator, it gives incredible weight and meaning to everything that he said. How you receive that truth Will uh, ultimately affect what you do with this man named Jesus, right? So, the last two weeks we've been looking at God as uh, we we looked at God as Creator, uh, and then we looked at Him as God who reveals Himself to us. And this week we're looking at Jesus as Savior. <clears throat> so, just so you know, this is the central theme of the entire Bible. This is what all of Scripture is about. All of it is pointing to Jesus and how God is saving the world through him. Everything in Scripture points to that fact from the beginning to the end. And in fact, it's why we're here today, and it's the whole reason we celebrate Jesus' birth. So, um, as Jenny said, we're going to be in John chapter 1. And uh, before we read through this, we're going to read through this together in just a second, but before we do, let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you that you not only... Uh, created us and that you're God and that you reveal yourself to us, but I thank you that you are the one who saves us. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would reveal yourself to us through your word today, that we would know who you are and what your identity is based on on you being Savior. God, I just pray that you would open our eyes to the truth that you'd have us see, see today. And uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to read this for you. Uh, it's going to be on the screen behind me. You can follow along in your Bible or on your phone there. But uh, let's, let's read in John chapter 1, uh, we're going to start in verse 10. It says, He came into the very world He created, but the world didn't recognize Him. He came to His own people, and even they rejected Him. But to all who believed Him, He gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. <clears throat> so in case you missed the first two weeks of this series, uh, Larry and Fritz both uh, spoke to the fact that Jesus is God and Creator. Uh, if you missed this, if you missed those messages, I would, I would strongly encourage you to go back and listen to those. Those are online. Uh, there's some really good foundational truth there. Um, And and it's important because where we're starting at today, we're starting from that understanding, that understanding of Jesus as God and as creator. Um, So there's some really important truths to recognize and pull out of this passage. And the first one, the first one is this, that Jesus, who is God, who's the one who created everything, he came into the world that he created and to the people that he created and everyone missed him. Now, I don't mean they missed him like he was gone and they missed him while he was gone. I mean they missed him like they didn't see him. It was like swinging a miss. They didn't, they, they, they didn't get it. Um, so if you look at verses 10 and 11, it says, He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, even they rejected him. So this isn't just repetition. This isn't just uh, <clears throat> John repeating the same thing. John's talking about two really specific groups of people here. Uh, when John says his own people, he's talking about the Jewish people. He's talking about uh, them as they would have understood themselves as God's chosen people. And when he says the world, he's talking about everyone else, right? So the, and so this is actually how the Jews would have understood those two groups at that time. <clears throat> they would have understood those two groups as we who are God's people and everyone else who was on the outside. Right? That's how they would have understood that. So <clears throat> what's interesting is that John, he could have just said everyone, right? because that actually doesn't exclude anyone. There's just two groups, and that's all, all of mankind. He doesn't exclude anyone by saying everyone, but what he does instead is he has great intention in how he points to both of these groups. Both of these groups miss the fact that their God and creator had entered their world in search of them. So what John's saying about these two groups of people is that they both missed Jesus. The people with the true religion and the people with uh, other religions and no religion all missed him. The people on the outside, the people far from God, didn't recognize Jesus for who he was. But the people on the inside, his own people who should have known him, didn't accept him for who he was. In fact, it says they rejected him. Uh, They rejected him as God and creator. They rejected him as Savior. The world didn't see a need for a Savior. And for the Jews, Jesus didn't fit their view of a Savior that they wanted. They hoped for somebody who would overthrow Roman oppression, uh, not for someone who would tell them they were sinful and in need of saving, not for someone who was going to point out their weakness and their need. They did not see themselves as lost, and yet that ex- that's exactly what Jesus is pointing to. Their lost condition, their sin, their need to repent. <clears throat> so what God is saying through verses 10 and 11 is that no one is left out. Nobody's left out of this. Everyone has missed it, even though they don't see themselves as lost. That's exactly what they are. So this is not the only place in Scripture that God points this out. Actually, God makes this, that, that fact really, really clear throughout the Bible, but probably no place more clear than, than how Paul says it in Romans chapter 3. Paul says this, he says, uh, he says, As the Scriptures say, No one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good not a single one. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Everyone has sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. So scripture is saying that everyone is in the same condition. Moral and immoral people, religious and irreligious people, people who are peaceful and people who are wicked, are all in the same spiritual situation. They're completely lost, and there is no difference. Now you might be thinking, "Now wait a minute." Uh, So you are saying that there's no difference between me and the worst person I can think of. You might be like, "How you know? Like, where do you get off suggesting that I'm I'm no better than that person?" Well, it's not just what I'm saying. I think that's exactly what Scripture is saying. Scripture points clearly to the fact that everyone is full of sin and needs to be saved. We're all in the same condition. We're all lost and corrupt and broken, and yet many of us don't feel that way. We don't feel that way at all. Verses 10 and 11 actually suggest that our default condition is oblivious to our real need. (laughs) So when John the Baptist says in verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, there may be people hearing it that think he's talking about somebody else, uh, some other group of people who are sinful, you know, uh, people who need forgiveness, like bad people, not people like me. Right? And so that's actually a much more common view than you might think. Uh, you, you, like me, might have entertained it yourself. Uh, often, it, it might sound something like this: somebody might say, "I'm generally a good person," um, <clears throat> or they might believe that God is going to accept them based on the assumption that their good works uh, are outweigh their bad works in their life. Sometimes it's it's the simple comparison between yourself and someone that you believe to be worse than you. <clears throat> so. There's an important thing to see here is that uh, um, we have to see the, new, the true nature of sin, what sin really is. You know, often we don't see ourselves as lost or sinful because we don't really understand what sin is. <clears throat> we commonly see sin or we look at sin and we think it's, it's breaking a rule, right? Yet the Bible doesn't define sin that way. The Bible rather defines sin as a, not, not a broken rule, but a broken relationship, Verse 10 and 11 is all about sin, but yet there's no rule being broken. You don't see that anywhere. (laughs) Look at what it says, though. It says they didn't recognize him, and they rejected him. So God defines sin in a way that you can be completely dead in sin and obey every rule that there is. You can be completely obedient and moral and good and still be completely sinful. You can do all the right things, You can be going to church, you can be reading your Bible, you can can be a good person and still be completely lost and in sin. Now Paul, who wrote Romans 3, knew this better than anyone. He was like the most law-keeping and devout and religious Jew there was, right? Uh, But he's the one who writes, all have sinned. There's no difference. He goes so far as to call himself the chief of all sinners. So how can that be? How can he have this view where he sees no difference? <clears throat> you see, sin is not about a broken rule, but rather a broken relationship. If you go back to where sin entered the world, if we were to look at, at Genesis 3, we walk back there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the account for you. Um, so in Genesis 3, it says this, it says, "'You won't die,' the serpent replied to the woman. "'God knows that, or, that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God.'" Knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and the fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were open, and they felt, suddenly felt shame for their nakedness. So, what was the rule that was broken? I mean, you might say, "Well, it was the it was don't eat the fruit." Well, it was, but it was not some moral absolute, something that everybody, regardless of their worldview or religion, would agree is wrong. Like don't kill, don't steal, don't uh, don't lie, right? Like those, that's a moral absolute. It wasn't that. And when God said, "Don't eat from the tree," that was not that wasn't one of the commandments. You know, that wasn't you know one of the rules, right? But what's it, what's God saying? Don't break the rule? No. God's not saying don't break the rule. He's saying, do this one thing because I'm God. You see, sin didn't happen when they ate the fruit. Sin happened when they asked the question, should we obey? You know, it was assuming that they had the authority to make make that decision in the first place. It happened when they decided to act independent from God. Sin is assuming God's place. You know, it's elevating yourself to this place of ultimate authority. It's, what it is, is it's substituting yourself for God. It's taking God off the throne and placing yourself there. It's right there. It's right there in verses 10 and 11. It says they didn't acknowledge him and they didn't accept him. They didn't accept God as being God. They had uh, they'd replaced him. Both the world and his own people had substituted themselves for God. They were their own authority. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans 3. It's, it's the sin that everyone has engaged in. <clears throat> and there's two basic ways that this happens. The, the first way is really, really clear and easy to understand it's, it's denying God altogether, it's saying, God, I don't, I don't believe God exists. And even in doing that, even in saying, I don't believe God exists, what we do is we make ourselves God. We have to have something, and we make ourselves God. Or maybe it's even, uh, you know, not quite that direction, but it's, I believe in God, but I'm not going to do anything he says. I'm just going to be outright, I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to be be bad, right? Um, But the other way that we actually substitute ourselves for God is um, a little bit more subtle. It's it's actually by obeying God completely, you know, and and this way is probably the easiest to deceive ourselves with. You know, when you do that, what's happening is we we actually obey God to get control of God. You know, you obey the rules so that now, uh, and whether we whether we want to admit it or not, is now God owes us, right? It it keeps us in control, keeps us in, in charge, and it looks very very good on the outside. But it's our way of getting a handle on God. It's saying, I have done this, now God must respond by doing that. Now, some evidence that that might be happening, like I, 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 I've engaged in this myself, some evidence that it might be happening is I, I'm doing all the right things, and, and yet things are not going the way that I think they should go, and I'm angry about it. Right? Um, so uh, you're, you're angry because life is not going the way that you think it should be, and others are doing things wrong, yet they're getting what I believe I deserve. Or maybe I feel superior to others. You know, though, you're, though I'm full of sin, I look down my nose at somebody else and say, uh, I think that they're worse than I am. And I, I, it's easy for me to go there, right? And so comparison, what comparison does is it actually always places you in the position of God. You make your own works the justification for your goodness. Essentially, you make yourself your own Savior and Lord. You know, this was the reason that the people on the inside rejected Jesus. They were doing all the right things, but they were doing them for all the wrong reasons. They were doing them to get control of God. Sin is not breaking the rules. Sin is substituting yourself for God. Everything you do good and bad, outside of relationship with God, is substituting yourself as Savior. It's it's an identity that's misplaced. It's an identity that's actually based on us being God. So everything I do under that identity really is an attempt to save myself, or to to make myself more valuable, or to give myself worth. Uh, Living under that identity, everything hinges on me being perfect. Ultimately, to sub- when you substitute yourself for God, you actually are responsible for saving yourself. You've got to see, everyone has done this. Every one of us has substituted ourselves for God, either by doing bad or by doing good. We're all under the penalty of it. The moral and the immoral, the religious and the irreligious, we are all the same, and there's no difference. You see, until you can understand what sin is, you can never really find joy in a Savior because you don't think that you need one. Now, this is the problem. The problem is that we've substituted ourselves for God. So while the, while the first truth here is the problem, the second truth from this passage is the remedy. So if you look at verses 12 and 13, it says this, it says, But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Now there's a lot there, and I want to dig into that. But it says, but to all who believed and accepted him. What does that mean? Well, based on our understanding of sin, it means accepting God as God. But how do you do that? I mean, clearly, none of us have been able to accomplish that on our own. So how do you do it? How do you believe and accept? So this truth is tied to a uh, kind of a mysterious statement there in verse 13 uh, that says they are reborn. Uh, Other translations say they are born again. So what on earth do you have to do to be born again? I mean, how is it even possible? So in two chapters, if we keep reading the book of John, and some of you guys have already been there, um, in two chapters, John's going to introduce us to this guy named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus uh, uh, comes to Jesus, and, and his encounter with Jesus is actually going to help us understand what verse 13 is saying. So in John chapter 3, a man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and then he, sa- he says this. He says, Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. He says something nice about Jesus, and does Jesus say, well, hey, I say some nice things about you? No, actually, what he does is he, he answers him in a different way. He says, uh, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, that seems like a really strange response to a statement, because Nicodemus didn't ask him a question. He made a statement, and, uh, and Jesus answers him with this statement that you must be born again. So it's helpful here to have some, some context, a little bit of context to know who Nicodemus is. Now, Nicodemus was part of the ruling class. He was part of the, uh, what was called the Sanhedrin. And so from that, we know that he was incredibly successful and powerful, and he was a, a man of importance. Um, he was also a Pharisee. So uh, that tells us that he was incredibly religious and moral and law-keeping. But he wasn't self-righteous. He was actually incredibly humble. Uh, and and open-minded. He came to Jesus not to trap him, but to learn from him. He actually calls him teacher. So he's a good guy, right? But you got to see what's happening here. Being born again, entering the kingdom of God, becoming children of God, can't be accomplished by human effort. That's what Jesus is saying. Because if anyone had a shot at approaching God based on their own merit, it would have been Nicodemus. So being born again can't be a call that's just clean up your act and do good. Nicodemus was already good. He was being good. But Jesus still says you must be born again. So it's not a call to get more religion. It's not a call to be more morally good. What Jesus is really saying to Nicodemus here in verse 7, and oh, by the way, uh, when he says you in verse 7, it's, this, this is written in the plural. So it's more like y'all. But but he's talking to Nicodemus, but he's actually addressing everyone. Um, he says, "You must be born again." What he's really saying to Nicodemus is that nothing you have done has, nothing you've ever done has mattered. Not your good works, not your bad works. He's saying to him, he's he says, you have to start over. When he says you have to be born again, that's what he means. So Jesus is saying that it doesn't matter how good or moral you are, how successful you are, or how generous you are, you are, or how good you are, you must be born again. But wait, there's another side to that statement, because he's also saying that no matter how bad you are, how messed up or terrible your background is, you can be born again. Not only can you start over, you must start over. So Nicodemus asked this obvious question, uh, and and he asked this. He's like, how on earth can I do that? He's like, how can an old man enter his mother's womb and be born again? And and Jesus answers it like this. He, He basically says, you can't. You can't. Man cannot accomplish this. Only the Spirit of God can accomplish this kind of rebirth. Chapter, or chapter 1, verse 13 says it like that. He says, he says they are reborn not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Now, to explain it further in, in chapter 3, uh, Jesus says this to Nicodemus. He says, "...no one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven, and as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Now that statement needs some context for us in our time today, um, and this might sound a little strange, but uh, um, it, this is coming from Numbers chapter 21, and, and Nicodemus would have known what he was saying. So I'm going to read it for you. This is a really, really short account in Numbers 21 of the children of Israel when they are, uh, they've come out of Egypt, and now they are in the wilderness, and Moses is leading them. It says this Then the people of Israel sent out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey, and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out to Egypt to die here in the wilderness? They complained. There's nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Then when then the people came to Moses and cried out, "We've sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes." So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord told him, "Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. And all who are bitten, if they will li- it will live if they simply look at it." So Moses made a snake made out of bronze, attach it to a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. What you've got to see here is Jesus pointed Nicodemus to a story that he would have known really, really well. One where God saves his own people through no effort of their own. All they have to do is look at the snake and they're healed. What you've got to see here is Jesus is pointing to the cross. He's pointing to the cross as the only way for people to be saved. The only way to be born again. It's not what they bring to the cross... It's not their human effort or their plans or their good works. It's all and only what Jesus brought to the cross. He's saying in the same way that people just looked at the snake and were healed, everyone who looks at what Jesus did on the cross and accepts that gift will be born again. You have to look at it. You have to look at Jesus. You have to see what length he went to to make you right, to give you new life. And he says in verse 16 in chapter 3, and probably all of us have heard this verse, he says, for this is how God loved the world. It says, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. You know, we've looked at Jesus as creator and as revealer, and now we're, we're seeing him as savior. The truth that matters the most here is that God sent his son to the world, not to judge the world, but to save us through him. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment for our sin. He paid our penalty for us. He took away our sin, and in return, he offered us his perfect righteousness so that we could have new life. This is how God saved the world through Jesus you see every time that you show mercy if you show mercy it's always at the expense of justice you know both things can't exist in the same place at the same time you know if you give mercy you don't give somebody the punishment they deserve right and and if you if you give justice mercy has to be withheld but do you realize that on the cross where jesus died was the only place in history, that mercy and justice have ever been shown together. How did it happen? Well, the punishment for the sin of everyone who's ever lived was what Jesus received, and he received it as a substitute for your sin and for mine. He did what no one else could do. He was the only one who was perfectly innocent, and he substituted himself for us. Now, Because justice has been satisfied, we can actually receive mercy. And not only mercy, but grace. Grace is receiving something that we don't deserve and something we haven't earned. It's it's what Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about. It's the essence of being born again. We start over. When we receive the gift that Jesus gives us, we start over. We have new life. That's what being born again is. It's not something that you can do. It's only something God can do. It's not something that you can earn or deserve. It's only a gift that you can receive. So in John 1.29, when John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's saying, we're all in need of a Savior. And that, that Savior is Jesus. Uh, we all need someone to take away our sin because to the person who who believes that their good works outweigh their bad verse 29 is deeply offensive it's it's suggesting that i am so bad and so helpless that i need somebody to take my, away my sin for me but to the person whose eyes are open to the truth that they're broken and helpless and in need of saving verse 29 is like the best news they could ever receive to those who can see that they're, they're dead in their sin, that uh, the, the truth that Jesus takes away sin and gives new life brings resolution to the thing that, that's the real need. What you've got to see here, you have to see the irony here. You see, the essence of sin is substituting yourself for God. But the remedy for sin is God substituting, substituting himself for you. You've got to feel that. Now, the application of that is, is where, um, this is where all of Scripture leads us. It almost leads us to this point where we say, okay, so God has done that. I see that I've been substituting myself for God, and I see that He's substituted himself for me. So what do I do? Like, what do I do? Where do I go from here? And that's the question in Scripture always leads us to. Based on this truth, what do I do now? Well, there's two really, really key pieces of application here uh, that, that's point, that everyone's pointed to. Uh, verse 12 says this. It says, To all who believed and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. So what does it mean to believe and accept? You know, if, if being born again is all the work of God, what's my role? Well, uh, Nicodem- Jesus tells Nicodemus that he's, he must be born again. What he's saying is he's saying nothing you have ever done has mattered and that you have to start over. Well, to Nicodemus, it probably seemed like all the things that he had done mattered, right? <clears throat> this is the same thing that uh, Matthew 4.17 points to. It says, it says this, it says, from, t- from that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So what's the application here? It's repentance, right? And so repentance is part of the active role that we have in believing and accepting. Now, repentance literally means to turn or to return. It means to turn away from something and go towards something. And every time that it's mentioned in Scripture, it's referring to turning away from sin and returning to God. So this word repentance, this might be a new word to you, um, or it might be something that you've heard your whole life, but for most of us, when we hear the word repent, we think that it simply means to ask God's forgiveness for what I've done wrong. And while that's certainly part of repentance, uh, it's an incomplete view. Here's where most people get tripped up or confused. There's a common misconception, misconception is that repentance is to ask God's forgiveness for what I've done wrong and then I promise to live for him. Now, here's the problem with that view. When I do that, essentially, I'm saying, God, forgive me for what I've done in the past, but now I'm going to live for you and be good. To be born again, though, says to God, what you're saying to God is, you've done it all, I've done nothing, I'm saved only by your grace. Now, grace, you got to understand, is God's unmerited favor. It's undeserved and unearned, Uh, And maybe even better said, it can't be earned. I heard someone say it like this. uh, Here's what's so hard about repenting, or what's, what's so hard about being born again, is that all you need is nothing, but most people don't have it. So you can't bring something with you, right? To be born again, you have to leave it all on the table. So if I say, God forgive me, now I promise to be good, I'm still bringing something with me you have to come with nothing. That's what he was saying to Nicodemus when he said, you have to start over, you must be born again. So the problem with that thinking is I've kind of missed the point. I've missed the fact that I couldn't be good enough to save myself, but now somehow I think that I'm going to be good enough to keep myself in God's favor. I forget that when Jesus substituted himself for me, that I became a child of God. Jesus gave me all of his rights and access to the Father. If You can't earn being a child. You're just born into it. You were born again not by your plans or effort. No child has ever been born by their own plans or effort. Um, when you were born again, you were born again into a new family, and that's God's family. And you actually were born into his family as God's favorite child. The fact that you don't deserve it is exactly what makes it valuable. It's, it's the thing that causes you to love him. So if I'm asking forgiveness for my past and now promising to be good, I'm actually just climbing right back on the throne. I might be trusting God to forgive me, but I'm depending on my good works to merit God's favor. Now, you might be there yourself and not even know it. Uh, here's a quick way you can check. Figuratively, look around. You know, If you compare yourself with someone else, or you see somebody else as better or worse than you based on what you uh, do or don't do, you have an identity that's centered around yourself. You know, comparison always places us in the position of God, and every one of us is capable of finding ourselves in that position at any moment. You see, believing and accepting Him is a whole new identity. It's adopting a new identity. It's no longer an identity where I'm God— but one where I believe in him and I accept him as God. It's an identity where I accept what Jesus has done for me. Now, the Bible says it like this. In, in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, this is what God says. God, it says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. Repentance isn't just repenting for all the bad things I've done. It's, it's repenting from the reason I've, I've, I did the, all the good things in the first place, which is, was to be my own Savior, to create my own identity. You know, one where I'm recognized and valued for the good things that I've done. It's an identity that I've achieved. Now, any achieved identity is based on relative status. It can change at any moment. And it, much like our American dollar, is only as good as the paper it's written on. You know, it lives in fear. Fear that it could lose its value at any moment. You know, to maintain its value, it it constantly has to measure up, and to fail is disaster. Jesus, on the other hand, gives you an identity that you could never achieve. One that you can only receive. One whose value is based on the perfect, unchanging holiness of God. The ultimate gold standard. It's an identity based on grace. You know, a received identity gives you hope. It gives you joy and peace. It gives you complete and total confidence that allows you to live free to follow Jesus. You know, it gives you the rights of a child of God, access to the Father that only belongs to a child. You have complete and total security in Him. So repenting of your good works and trusting in Jesus, that doesn't mean that we don't do good things anymore. What it means is that we have a whole new reason for doing them. You know, we, don't, we no longer do them so that God loves us. We do that because he does love us. So the first piece of application here is repentance, but it is tied inseparably. It's two sides to a coin, inseparably to the second one, which is dependence. Dependence is resting in God's grace. It's resting in the fact that God has done it all and clinging to that. Not not just once, but daily. I mean, like day by day, moment by moment, depending on God's grace as my identity. You know, for the person who accepts this new identity, their life becomes becomes one of constant repentance. That's, That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. It's constantly turning away from an identity where I am God and returning to my real identity, where I'm a child of God. People who are born again see everything differently. This change of identity brings with it a whole new way of thinking, and God's continually changing that thinking, renewing that thinking. Because of my sin, I'm dependent on God. You know, because of His grace, I'm saved. Nothing I can, I did and nothing I can do can save me. Only Jesus can, and He has. I can't depend on anything else. So this issue of identity is critical to depending on God's grace. A good illustration of the importance of this new identity is to look at, at the Apostle Peter. <clears throat> Peter was one of Jesus' disciples, and probably he's probably one of the ones that I can relate to the most. Um, very passionate, and he would often speak his mind, uh, maybe even without thinking. Uh, so maybe that's why I relate. But Peter had this crisis of identity, much like I've had. Um, In Matthew chapter 26, uh, on the evening Jesus was arrested, after they'd eaten the Passover supper together, Jesus and his disciples are walking together on their way to the Mount of Olives. And as they're going, Jesus says this to them. He says, tonight, all of you will desert me. For the Scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter declared, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. No, Peter uh, insisted, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. So while Peter uh, had genuinely vowed never to abandon Jesus, even to the point of dying with him, we watch as just what Jesus predicts happens. Down to the letter, Peter denies three times even knowing Jesus, to the point of saying, a curse on me if I'm lying, I don't even know the man. Then in verse 75, when the rooster crowed, Peter immediately remembered Jesus' words, and it it says that he went away and wept bitterly. So if you jump ahead to John chapter 21, after Jesus is raised from the dead, he meets his disciples in Galilee, just like he said he would. He eats with his disciples, and, and after they eat, Jesus asks Peter a question. And this, this question exposes uh, his crisis of identity. He says this. He says, "Do you love me more than these?" And what what, Peter's, what Jesus is asking Peter is, "Do you love me more than the rest of the disciples?" You know He's putting his finger on the real issue Peter's facing. Peter's identity is completely shaken and crushed. Because he swore that he loved Jesus more than anyone else. And when when that identity was broken, Peter was broken with it. So you see, Peter's identity crisis was this. He had an identity that was based on his love for Jesus more than it was Jesus' love for him. You see, all, all Peter's worth and value was wrapped up in how much he loved God. And Peter, like everyone else, missed it. When Peter had come to the end of himself and was faced with the reality that his love for God was not enough, there, that's the place where he finds God's grace. It wasn't until Peter came with nothing that he could receive a new identity, one that couldn't be shaken. So Jesus shows Peter that his good works couldn't earn God's love and that his failures didn't separate him from it. In fact, it doesn't disqualify Peter from being used by God because in the very next breath, Jesus uh, instructs Peter to care for his people and to follow him. So I'm not sure if you're anything like me, but uh, it's possible that you have at at some time felt, um, felt as though God could... Could never accept me because of what I've done, or it's possible that you you think uh, I know God loves me, but He could never use me because of you know insert whatever thing you think disqualifies you from being used by God. This is most certainly where Peter was. This was the very reason that Jesus, our God, our Creator, our Savior came into the world he came because his people who had substituted themselves for him needed an identity that could only be provided by him substituting himself for us so it's not until we come to Jesus with nothing that we can receive a new identity it's not until we repent of all our bad works and our good works alike that we can really experience God's grace It's not until we give up substituting ourselves for God that we can find peace. You know, to the degree that we are trusting in our own goodness, we're missing out on God's grace. So if you're hearing God's voice today, there's really only one next step. And that is repent and rest in God's grace. Uh, repent of your good works and your bad works alike turn around and leave your old identity and receive one that you can't earn and you can't lose if if you've never put your faith in in jesus if you've never trusted him to save you you can actually do that right now now i would encourage you don't wait you it's as simple as believing and accepting him it's making the active choice not to substitute yourself for him. It's accepting him as the one who saves you and the one who leads you. It's not something uh, that you do or achieve. It's completely a gift that you receive. And one that you don't earn. One that you don't deserve. Accepting Jesus means, uh, as God means everything. And you can have a new identity today that you can never lose. Now, if you're already a part of God's family, you have to know this. You are his child. God has saved you. He loves you and approves of you, not because of anything you've done, but, but, but completely based on what Jesus has done. And it's also likely that you're still hearing God's call to repent. It's possible that God's opening your eyes to ways that you are right now substituting yourself for him. First, I want to say that's normal. Not only is it completely normal, but it's evidence that you belong to him. The Christian life is one of constant repentance. The fact that there's a battle between your sinful nature and your new identity shows that you've been born again. That's that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Jesus invites us to follow him. That means depending on him, not only as our forgiver, but our leader. It looks like choosing to accept him as God rather than ourselves, moment by moment. So when God opens your eyes uh, to ways that you're trying to be him, say yes. Say yes to his leadership and no to your own. You turn around and you come back to him with joy in your heart. Understand, everyone fails at this. We all constantly need God's grace and forgiveness. There will never be a moment where you don't need Jesus. When you hear God's call to repentance, understand that you come with empty hands. Because Jesus says you must be born again. It's not because of what you do, it's not be, it's because of what he's done. Uh, he loved you so much that he died for you, and now with joy in your heart, you can actually say yes to him. We're going to take a minute here and, and pray, but I, I, want to, I want to offer you the chance. Let's all, let's all close our eyes and bow our head, and uh, we're going to ask God this one question. God, what are you saying to me today? Now, now let's just listen. We care really deeply about prayer here. And uh, so much so that we, we actually want to pray for you today. Everyone needs prayer. Um, there's no need to be embarrassed if you want prayer. Uh, it's, it, you don't have to be ashamed to ask for prayer. Uh, God himself, Jesus, asked for prayer in the garden right before he dies. We all need prayer. So if you want to pray with somebody this morning, there's going to be prayer partners in, in each of the corners of this room. And uh, they'll, they'll have a, a tag on that says they want to pray, with, pray for you. Uh, they're actually going there right now. Uh, and I would encourage you, when we stand and sing this last song, uh, if you want to pray, go find them right during that. But uh, before we do that, I want to pray for you. Father, I thank you that you have saved us through no work of our own and that you offer to us a gift. Lord, I pray that everyone who needs prayer, uh, that you would just draw them to you right now in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you'd like to learn more about Lighthouse Community, check out our website at mylighthousecommunity.com or connect with us on Facebook. You're invited to join us live Sunday mornings at 909 or 1111. Thanks again for listening to the Lighthouse Community Podcast.